800 years ago, in the wake of a disastrous foreign military adventure, a group of powerful men met to craft an agreement whose effects are with us to this day. Among other things, it utterly transformed criminal procedure and gave rise to the birth of trial by jury. I refer, of course, to the Fourth Lateran Council of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, <laughs> opened by Pope Innocent III in November 1215. One of its key decisions was to ban the clergy from participating in judicial ordeals, which were a common way to determine guilt uh, at that time. With ordeals taken off the table, legal systems had to come up with an alternative means of adjudicating crimes. And in England, the new common law courts decided to use trial by jury. Now, Dick Howard will speak uh, to us this morning about Magna Carta, another extremely important document created in 1215, uh, but that, contrary to popular understanding, has nothing at all to do with trial by jury. Dick is one of the world's foremost experts on Magna Carta, having written two books on the topic, which he has wisely brought out in revised editions this year. Dick's work in constitutional law, comparative constitutionalism, and the Supreme Court has been wide-ranging and extremely influential. Dick has not wanted for academic achievements. He is a Rhodes Scholar, a law clerk to Justice Hugo Black, and perhaps most impressively, an alumnus of the law school. He is well known as the principal draftsman of the current Virginia Constitution and the chair of the Virginia Commission on the Bicentennial of the U.S. Constitution, among his many public roles in the Commonwealth and in Washington, D.C. Drafters of new constitutions from around the world have sought his guidance and wisdom. In 2007, the Richmond Times-Dispatch named Dick one of the greatest Virginians of the 20th century. In 2013, the university gave him its highest faculty honor, the Thomas Jefferson Award, and just this spring, the Raven Society gave him its faculty award. Yet these accolades, and many others far too numerous to mention, have not kept him from putting his full effort into the classroom, from which generations of students have profited, and the university is recognized with an award for teaching excellence. This year, he has a full schedule on both sides of the Atlantic about the meaning of Magna Carta in historical and contemporary perspective. I'm delighted to present my friend and colleague, Dick Howard. Paul, I trust you will transcribe those remarks for my students. In the fall, I'd like them to know that they actually are being taught by somebody who matters. Uh, because if the dean says so, then you're bound to believe it. Speaking of students, I'm happy to see a number of former students in the audience this morning. That's, that's a vote of confidence. I mean, you've had me for a semester. You're back for more. Uh, I am happy to assure you that I will not be doing any cold calling this morning. Um, as Paul said, I'm not here to talk about Lateran councils or the, what the Pope did or didn't do, but I am here to talk about Magna Carta 800 years ago. In June of this year, it will be the 800th anniversary. And, you know, that's a long time ago. Who cares? I mean, why in the world would anybody care about what happened at Runnymede when that scruffy bound of a gang of barons got together and persuaded a very reluctant King John to agree to Magna Carta? And in particular, why would Americans agree? 
Well, it happened over there on the other side of the Atlantic. So my effort this morning is to try to suggest to you that the anniversary, in fact, means something to us, uh, perhaps even more than it might mean to our English cousins. So I want to give you several milestones that take us from Runnymede in 1215 to where we are today. Um, I first met King John in a metaphorical sense. I actually never met him. <laughs> Whatever my students might think, I never knew King John. Uh, I'm not sure I would have liked him very much. I first met him in a manner of speaking when I was very small. A.A. Uh, a. Milne, who created Winnie the Pooh, also wrote a wonderful little book called Now We Are Six. It's a book you should know if you've never encountered it as a child. One of the uh, excerpts in it is King John's Christmas. And it goes something like the first several lines. Um, King John was not a good man. He had his many ways. And sometimes no one spoke to him for days and days and days. <laughs> well, you know, you're a kid. You think people being shunned. Nobody could be that bad. Well, I grew up. I read more about King John. He was that bad. <laughs> he may not have been bad in every moral sense, although I suspect he was. But he was a terrible king. And after all, that was the role he was supposed to play. And now, the problem is you come after Richard the Lionheart. I mean, that's a tough, tough, tough act to follow. But during his time as king, I mean, everything fell apart. He quarreled with the pope. Uh, he quarreled with the townspeople of London. He quarreled in particular with the barons. He was a terrible uh, military leader. Uh, Paul has mentioned the uh, campaigns that he fought in France. He lost the, the, the barons' holdings in Normandy itself. These were Normans. This was, these were their land holdings. So he collected so many enemies, that's why they finally met at Runnymede in 1215. Now I'm going to spare you all the medieval sort of feudalism, the, much of the charter concerns things that we have no concern about today. But it, it, there is one central guarantee that the king was obliged to make. And that was the guarantee that proceedings would take place according to the law of the land. And law of the land came over time to mean what we call due process of law. There was also a provision that said that justice would not be sold, delayed, or denied. So there you have the two cornerstones of American as well as English constitutional principles. Uh, on the one hand, due process of law, the other hand, uh, not selling or denying or delaying justice. Now that was a story at Runnymede. It could have ended there. I mean, you can bet that King John never meant to keep his promise. Indeed, he got the Pope to come in within a matter of weeks and annul King, annul Magna Carta. So it, it would have been a dead letter. But the next year, King John died, 1216. One of the chroniclers said that he died of a surfeit of uh, cider and peaches. So if, the, if, if outside you're offered cider and peaches, I would <laughs> suggest you, you say no thank you. So King John died. His successor, Henry III, was nine years old. Now this is the Middle Ages. and You've seen Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> How long is a nine-year-old king going to live? Somebody is out to, get, he went to see that he doesn't reach his majority. Well, his advisors came up with a in effect, a public relations idea. They said, we will have Henry III reissue Magna Carta. We'll have him make the same promises to the English people that King John made in 1215. And maybe that will tend to have the people rally around the king. So he did that. And that began the tradition down through the years of each king coming to the throne reissuing Magna Carta. 
Well, so in formal terms, it clearly remained on the books, but that, that didn't mean it would amount to all that much or a lot of other charters and documents. It's interesting that about 100 years after Runnymede, there was a statute enacted in Parliament that said that if any laws were in conflict with Magna Carta, they would be held to be null and void. Now, that's not quite Marbury versus Madison, but it suggests a notion that somehow Magna Carta is a more fundamental statute, a more important statute than the others of the realm. Now, I'm going to skip over the Tudor years. Um, all of you have seen Wolf Hall, I expect. <laughs> you might agree with me that uh, Henry VIII's reign is not known as a time of great constitutional limitations on the king's power. <laughs> so the Tudors didn't add a lot to this story. We, we come to the 17th century. Now this is where it really the rubber really hits the road because that's a turbulent century. The Stuarts come to the throne of England in 1603. James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England. James brought with him the idea of the divine right of kings. Now, divine right of kings is not exactly a constitutional precept. And so he was on a collision course with Parliament. The leader of Parliament at that time was Sir Edward Cook. Cook was not only the great parliamentarian, he was a, at one point a judge of King's Bench. He was the, certainly the greatest legal scholar and commentator of his time, including commentaries on Magna Carta. So in debates in Parliament, where Parliament was confronting the overreaching efforts of, once again it was about money, trying to raise revenue. Uh, when Cook objected to what the king was trying to do, he said, sovereign power is no parliamentary word. Uh, Magna Carta is such a fellow, he will have no sovereign. So what Cook was basically doing was reaching back into English history, rediscovering, reasserting the promises of, um, of Magna Carta. Well, if you trace the 17th century, which I will not do in detail, it's one turbulent issue after another, a civil war breaking out in 1642, the execution of, of, of a king, Charles I, the Cromwellian regime, the restoration of the Stuarts in 1660. It's just, a, I mean, it really is a pretty dreadful time. It was in its way rather like the civil war in America. Well, finally, it resolved itself. The Stuarts were brought back to the throne, a mistake, I think. <laughs> Once they had problems with them, they wouldn't bring them back. But finally, it resulted in what historians used to call the Glorious Revolution. Now, I suspect whether you called it glorious depended on whether you were on the winning side or not. You're not so glorious to the losers. But they ousted the Stuarts. They brought William and Mary to the throne. And part of the revolution settlement was the great English Bill of Rights of 1689, which took its place right alongside Magna Carta as one of the liberty documents of English history. Now that, that uh, statute, uh, that 17th century statute, is also important to Americans because you can lay the English Bill of Rights side by side with the American Constitution and you'll find provisions that are carried over word for word from the English side to the American side. Well that's basically the English story and that is really a backdrop for what happened in America. Because think about the fact that while these upheavals were taking place in England in the 17th century, that was precisely the time that the first English-speaking colonies were being planted in this country, beginning, of course, with Jamestown in 1607. I just came back last fall, I gave something called the James Otis Lecture in Boston at Fannell Hall, and I had to be impolitic enough to tell my New England, my Massachusetts audience, that uh, they were pretty good at words, 
but maybe they're not so good at numbers that for some reason they don't quite get it that 1607 is a lower number than 1620. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Luckily I was coming back to Virginia, I didn't have to stay in Massachusetts after I, after I said that. But you, you, you get the point. Well, the first charters, beginning with the Virginia Company Charter of 1606, carried invariably a guarantee to the immigrants that they would bring with them to America, to this new colony, the privileges, franchises, and immunities of Englishmen. I mean, this was sort of saying, if you pull up roots and leave England, come to America, you bring your rights under the common law with you. You don't leave them behind. Uh, a colonist in Spain or Portugal could not point to language like that. It was peculiar to the English colonies. So from the beginning, hard times though they were, the colonists in Virginia and the other colonies brought with them these, these guarantees, reinforced over the years by, of course, the setting up of courts, the training of lawyers, the importation of English law books, and indeed with time, uh, American lawyers going back to London to study at places like the, the Middle Temple. So over these generations from 1607 right to the eve of revolution, you had the reinforcing of English constitutional values. I mentioned James Otis. Um, you will be familiar, many, many of you, with the arguments that James Otis made in 1760 against the so-called writs of assistance. These were sort of general warrants. You could go to a merchant's property and search for anything you liked. These were not, these were general search warrants of a kind that Otis argued were not constitutional. The interesting thing about Otis's argument, and this is years before he had a, an American constitution, his arguments were constitutional arguments. And he invoked Magna Carta, he invoked Lord Cook, the 17th century jurist that I mentioned. Cook had decided in 1610 a case called Dr. Bonham's case. And in it, Lord Cook said that if an act of parliament were against right reason, it would be unconstitutional, be null and void. Well, as, you, as I'm sure you know, that doctrine never really took hold in England. With the passage of time, by the 18th century, Blackstone's commentaries tell us that Parliament can do anything it pleases. Parliament is supreme. There is no judicial or constitutional limits on Parliament's power. That may have become the view in 18th century England. It was not the view in 18th century America. Because Otis was speaking for any number of people at, at, of his generation and saying there are limits on what Parliament can do as, 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 as touches the colonies. So they were making arguments which, which, if you want to think about the revolution in legal or constitutional terms, <clears throat> America and England were on a collision course, diverging parliamentary supremacy on one side, constitutional limitations on the other. Well, if you think back to your school days, you'll remember that after the so-called Seven Years' War or the French and Indian Wars, it was called in this country, uh, Americans began to an outpouring of pamphlets and resolutions and tracts attacking British policy. Typically, denial of right by, of trial by jury, and also no taxation without consent. And these, these uh, resolutions were, in effect, a kind of dress rehearsal for constitution-making in America. Um, if you look at those colonies, what you find is a very interesting mix of constitutional arguments, citation to the colonial charters, and natural law, or God's law. 
all mixed up together saying, well, whatever label you put on it, it all adds up to the same thing. We Americans have rights, which you, the British, are not respecting. So that brings you to the eve of revolution itself, where, as I say, I think Americans, by instinct, were already constitutional lawyers before we had a constitution. We then turned to drafting constitutions. Once again, I don't want to <laughs> be parochial, but it started in Virginia, 1776, at Williamsburg, the convention that was passing laws for revolutionary Virginia, also was the one that instructed our delegates of Philadelphia to introduce the Resolution for Independence. On the same day that they passed that resolution, they set to work on a state constitution. Actually, they set to work on two documents, a Declaration of Rights and a Frame of Government. And that's interesting in itself that if you look at the Virginia Constitution today, the Bill of Rights is Article One, simply part of the Constitution. But in the revolutionary founding period, it was understood the first thing you do is articulate your rights, set them out as preceding government, then you set about the work of writing a frame of government, really a two-step process. So in that process, George Mason of Fairfax County, who was the principal draftsman, um, introduced a great deal of a blend of both natural law on the one side, John Locke and social compact, with uh, Magna Carta and English principles on the other. At this point in the story, I will have to give credit to my friends in Massachusetts. I've dissed them up to now, but I want to <laughs> show that I'm not totally a parochial Virginian, though I often talk like one. I mean, I was born and raised here. What, what can I say? But I want to give credit to Massachusetts because Thomas Jefferson hated that first Virginia Constitution. He, he spent the next 50 years criticizing it because, he said, it was adopted by the same body that made ordinary laws. How could you distinguish between legislation and constitutions when the same people were acting, enacting both? So the Constitution was just another law. I suspect, never having known Thomas Jefferson, but reading about him, that I think he was kind of put out because he wasn't there to write it. <laughs> you know, he could not imagine you could do anything without him, so he, he was his critic. Well, that fundamental flaw in Virginia's constitution was what the people in Massachusetts corrected. 1780, they, 1779, they called a convention elected by, whose delegates were elected by the people to write a constitution, and the product was then put back to the people for a popular vote and referendum. So it clearly was based on popular sovereignty in a way that the Virginia constitution was not. Uh, John Adams, by the way, was the architect of that constitution, they had a committee of three people, James Bowden, Samuel Adams, John Adams, and the first two left all the work to John. They went off to some Boston tavern. I mean, go into a tavern sometime today and order a John Adams beer, <laughs> right? Does not exist. He was the class nerd, right? Samuel Adams gets the credit for, for, <laughs> for, the, for the beer. By the way, I... I'll be in England in about three weeks giving lectures over there. And I went, Google is wonderful. I decided I'd Google Magna Carta beer. Sure enough, somebody is bottling Magna Carta beer, a brewery near, near Runnymede. And then I said, I wonder if there's a beer named for King John. Sure enough, <laughs> sure enough, not only is there a King John ale, it's bad King John ale. <laughs> 
<laughs> and the website describes it as having a character like King John himself, <laughs> dark and brooding. So <laughs> somehow I'm going to get some of that beer back to the, this, this country. So the states made constitutions, and then as this is familiar American history to all of you. Uh, then we moved finally through stages to the Philadelphia Convention of 1787. Now, now here Americans were charting new ground. As far as I know, now the, dele the uh, debates were not all transcribed. We have maybe 10% of the debates through James Madison's notes. As far as I know, Magna Carta was never mentioned at Philadelphia. Now, I mean, wow, after all this reliance on Magna Carta, we hold it up as a foundation of American rights and all the rest, then it's not mentioned? Well, I think the reason is that the framers realized much, they appreciated Magna Carta, they respected it, but they said, we are doing something the English never did. We are looking for a document, a foundational document that will limit not just the executive, the king or the president, but all the branches of government. And that's clearly something Blackstone agreed had not happened in England. And they also were saying uh, Magna Carta was in effect a grant from the king. This document we're writing is based on the people's decision, we the people, in the, in, in the preamble. So that was the Federalist frame of mind, but it nearly proved fatal. As, I mean, again, you know this history, how when the Philadelphia Convention rejected the motion to have a Bill of Rights, then the anti-Federalists, Patrick Henry and all that crowd, sprang into action saying, what? No Bill of Rights? We will not have it. And so the proposed Constitution nearly was defeated. In Virginia, 10 votes. Uh, New York, 6 votes. And if New York and Virginia had voted no, we wouldn't have had, surely, the constitutional arrangement we now have. So the Federalists, James Madison, and all of them said, all right, we, we, we get the point. Just ratify the Constitution, and we will add a Bill of Rights which Madison and the First Congress proceeded to do. And it's in that aspect that you get, I think, the Magna Carta tradition. So the story basically is about innovation, American contributions, things like uh, federalism, judicial review, and tradition at the same time, and that's the tradition that dates back to Magna Carta. So that's basically how you find the bridge from England to America. So what's the legacy? I mean, what is it that Magna Carta contributes to American constitutional law? Uh, first of all, it's probably the iconic representation of what we lawyers talk about when we say rule of law. It's the ultimate rule of law document. Now, people in this room use the phrase rule of law fairly easily, as if it were self-explanatory. Uh, I remember being, Russia was mentioned a few minutes ago, um, I was in what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, uh, working with lawyers and judges who were drafting the first post-communist Russian constitution. <laughs> Seems like a long time. Remember the days before Putin when we thought Russia might be a liberal constitutional democracy? Boy, forget that. So we were, we were I, I don't speak any Russian, so we were working through trans, a very good translator. But I realized at one point she was rendering the English language phrase rule of law as uh, socialist legality. I said, no, I don't think that's quite what we Americans mean by that's not quite the point we have in mind. So rule of law. Second, 
Magna Carta represents the articulation of fundamental rights, the notion that you, you have rights that are, that are passed down from one generation to another. Thirdly, the idea of a written constitution. The Anglo-American tradition of putting it in writing is something that dates back to Magna Carta. And I think it is in many ways the seed of constitutional supremacy. It was a grant from the king to be sure. It may have been very hotly debated. It may not in Blackstone's minds have, have trumped parliament, but it's where the whole idea of a constitution as a super statute proceeds. Remember the arguments that James Otis made in Boston in 1760. It's the road that finally leads you to Marbury versus Madison. Now I don't remember, <laughs> I'm not gonna cold call anybody on Marbury, but do you remember when in your first year in law school you read Marbury? Maybe it was a little puzzling that John Marshall began with the general principles of jurisprudence, the idea of a constitution, and then late in the opinion he finally gets around to the supremacy clause, to the text of the constitution. Almost as an after, oh yes, by the way, there's something in the constitution about this. Marshall was saying you write a constitution, inevitably by the nature of the enterprise something happens and it's a superior and supreme document and the Supreme Court has to say so. Finally in the tradition of, and legacy of Magna Carta I think we have inherently the notion of an organic evolving developing constitutional tradition. Now it's at this point that I tread onto perhaps somewhat dangerous ground. I'm glad that Justice Scalia is not in the room, is he? <laughs> if my sometime colleague of many years ago at UVA, UVA were here, he would not want me to have the words living constitution pass my lips. It would be to him kind of a swear word. <laughs> but you know, you know the debate all about originalism on the one hand and the so-called living constitution on the other. I think, as in my travels, especially in civil law countries, I don't think you can understand American constitutionalism without understanding the common law tradition. That in many ways we think about, we work with, we reinterpret our constitution in many ways uh, like we do the common law itself. Nothing more than due process of law. Um, here's what Justice Kennedy said, Lawrence versus Texas, you may remember the case from Texas 2003, the, the anti-sodomy statute in Texas. Uh, Justice Kennedy said that those who drew and ratified the Due Process Clause did not presume to know the components of liberty and its manifold possibilities. The times can blind us to certain truths, and later generations can see that laws once thought necessary and proper serve only to oppress. As the Constitution endures, persons in every generation can invoke its principles in their own search for greater freedom. Now that's interesting language to me and think about the case the Supreme Court will decide in a few weeks on same-sex marriage. We all know that Justice Kennedy will be the, we think, the, um, the critical fifth vote in that case. In light of that language, don't you think that will have something to do with how he approaches the arguments in, in that same-sex marriage case? So there you have Magna Carta's 800 years one last word, and that is on the actual copies of Magna Carta itself. There are 17 extant copies of Magna Carta, four from 1215, others are later reissues. 17 copies, they're all in England except for one in Australia and one that's at the National Archives, one in the, a 1297 charter.
I was on a flight to London one time, and my seatmate was a lawyer from Texas. And he turned out to be Ross Perot's personal lawyer. So he told me the story how Ross Perot, who presumably had a lot of other stuff, decided he would like to have a copy of Magna Carta. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you got it all, why not have Magna Carta? So he sent this lawyer over to negotiate for the purchase of, of this 1297 charter, which was in the hands of a private family in England. So he finally worked it out and paid, this was back in the 1980s, uh, $1.5 million. Not pocket change, I would say. <clears throat> I say. So I said to this lawyer, I said, great, okay, you, you've bought this 1297 charter. How do you get it back to America? You know, doesn't England have laws about exporting its patrimony and all that? And he said, well, he, first he took it and he rolled it up and put it in a mailing tube. <laughs> Put Magna Carta in a mailing too? And then he went to Heathrow and the customs agent said, you know, what have you got in the mailing tube? And he said, a copy of Magna Carta. And the agent said, right, mate, go on through. So, so, assuming, I guess, that he had a facsimile i.e. copy of Magna Carta. So he, he gets it home and goes on display in the National Archives. Time passes. And I guess Ross Perot decided he didn't need this copy of Magna Carta anymore. So he puts it on auction in New York at Sotheby's. And David Rubenstein, the great philanthropist who's been so helpful to Monticello and Mount Vernon and other places, he gets wind of this. He's not there at the auction. He's bidding over the telephone. But he's putting in these bids for this copy of Magna Carta and pays $21.5 million for it. So now you know why Ross Pro has a lot of money. I mean, <laughs> that's a nice markup, 1.5 to 21.5. So David Rubenstein buys this copy of Magna Carta, puts it on permanent loan at the National Archives. Um, they decide they would like to have a little ceremony, you know, welcoming this copy of Magna Carta. So they got a hold of me and said, would I come up and give a lecture? Oh, I said, sure, I'll be happy to give a lecture at the archives about Magna Carta. And the Washington Post, on each Thursday has a little box that has three or four interesting things taking place the next week. So the week before my lecture, the box had something like uh, Professor A.E. Dick Howard at the University of Virginia on Tuesday, March 10th at 7.30 p.m., whatever it was, uh, will be at the National Archives to talk about his book, The Road from Runnymede, and his purchase of Magna Carta. <laughs> <laughs> purchase of Magna Carta for $21.5 million. <laughs> so I came home that night. I told my wife, I said, we are going to get some very interesting phone calls. <laughs> I said, to some very fancy parties. I said, don't ask any questions. Just say yes. So, well, the truth is out. As you know, I don't have it at uh, a copy of Magna Carta. So there you basically have the American story. If you're at the archives sometime, go look at that, that charter. Uh, it's a year to think about Magna Carta's traditions. We, we don't live in feudal times. We don't, aren't worried about the pretensions of, of monarchy. But uh, we do, I think, still pursue the aim which I think Magna Carta also represents. Uh, what is the promise of ordered liberty? The Magna Carta story. Thank you very much. Appreciate you being here.